We're in Acts chapter 2. We're in the middle of a series called En Fuego, a church on fire. What does it look like for the church to be on mission as God's new humanity, as God's new redeemed community? What does it look like for us to be that in Owasso, to be that in Bartlesville, to be that in Claremore, to be that in Grove? What does it look like for the church, God's new humanity, to be his hands and feet in the world? We saw in Acts chapter 1 that God gives his people resources. He gave us the resource of the resurrection. Luke wants Theophilus to know the resources that he has. He gave his people his ascension. God is ruling and reigning right now at the Father's right hand. He gave his people the resource of prayer that we would be a praying people. He also gave us the resource, as we saw last week, the great gift that would be for all people who believe. Not just on prophets and priests and kings like in the Old Testament. But the Holy Spirit has come to every believer. The church did not begin in Pentecost. It always existed since the days of Abraham. But the presence of the Holy Spirit in each believer began at Pentecost. We saw that last week. And so this week we're going to see Peter's very first sermon. And I'm a little nervous for him, aren't you? Let's stand together and we'll read from Acts chapter 2. I'll start at verse 12. We'll go down through verse 41. This is the word of the Lord. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Remember, Peter had just stood with the other disciples and the 120 in the room to hear everybody heard in their mother tongue the good news of the gospel. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be made known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, since only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it is not possible, was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. 
you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say so to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn it with an oath to him that we would set, he would set one of his descendants upon the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word. It is absolutely trustworthy, and he gives it to you in love. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Friends, I read this week that the average commute for a person who lives in Owasso is 10 to 29 minutes. That the average person in town who commutes to work commutes 10 to 29 minutes. You know, the average person that comes to church on Sunday morning um, comes 6.2 miles. That's the average. It's thrown off a little bit because some of us live further out. But if we commute, if we commute 10 to 29 minutes every day, that means that we're not in our backyards, most of us, like we used to be a generation or two ago, working on the farm, back by the barn. We don't come in for lunch to see our spouse and our kids every day. We're working further away, either in downtown Tulsa or out in Skytook or somewhere around town. And when we come home at night, I feel this way. You shared your stories with me, too. You've had a long day at work. And the first thing, guys especially, that you want to do is you don't want to sit around and catch up with your wife and talk. You want to come in the door and you just want to veg out. And you want to find ESPN. You know exactly what channel it is. And you just want to have about 20 minutes of just total peace before the TV. What happens over time is that we get into this rhythm of just wearing ourselves out with our commute, and by the time we get home, it's late, we're tired. We don't really want to discipline our kids well, so we snap at them because we're just angry for no reason. And we stop talking together as husband and wife, and your wives, um, men need you to talk to them. And we don't do a very good job of that. And so they go find a place where they can talk, and that becomes Facebook. Like one couple I talked to um, not long ago. She began to get on Facebook, and she began to find some emotional outlet because her husband wasn't giving it to her. He worked a ton and got home tired, and so she hooked up 
with her old high school friend that she hadn't talked to in 20 years. And he became our outlet. It was very subtle. It's just Facebook. But slowly but surely, she began to stop talking to him as much, and she began to pour more and more of her life into her online buddy. And um, nothing ever came of it, but they found a real distance growing between them. They lived in the same house. They paid mortgage together. They paid all their bills. But they really grew apart. And they came to Owasso to have this beautiful life together. But in trying to live the good life, just in doing the things they do to provide for each other, they found that somehow they lived in a house with a stranger. And somebody's kids were the kids that they were primarily responsible. Oh, they're my kids too. How does, how does that pattern happen? And what hope is there for us? If we come to town to live this good, idyllic, wonderful, bucolic life, and we find that slowly but surely we're finding the closest people in our lives to become more and more the strangers that we never knew. In some ways, what Peter says to us this morning addresses that problem. You see, what's interesting about Peter's first sermon, Peter's very first sermon was he was preaching to you and to me. He was preaching to the religious the good guys. He was preaching to the people who lived in Owasso, Oklahoma, as it were, who wanted to live the good life. But slowly but surely, the habits of their heart began to change and contour their very relationships that they needed to be rescued in a major way. So listen, here's what I'm going to do this morning. I want to lay out for you as clearly as I can what's going on in this text because it's really important for the whole book of Acts and indeed all of redemptive history. And then I'm going to back up and just talk about five things, five applications to this that I think every one of us need to know. What's going on in this text? We'll have a little Bible study here for about 10 minutes. You ready? Here's what's going on. Peter stands up before this crowd of people, and there are some who are with awe and perplexity saying, this is amazing. What does it mean? And there are others who are mocking. And Peter stands up to give his first sermon, and he doesn't just launch in to the Bible. He begins by addressing their very first concern. So Peter says, look, Jews, it's, Jews rarely eat before 9 o'clock in the morning, much less drink. These guys aren't drunk. What's happening to them is what you yourselves should know. Remember in the book of Joel? Joel said that there will come a time when all of God's people will prophesy. That is, that they will all have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, not just the kings like David or the prophets like Ezekiel, but everybody. This is it. You should know that. You guys have been to church for a long time, he says to this crowd. And Joel takes these guys into the prophets, into Joel chapter 2, to show them that what Joel was talking about in the midst of warning Israel, uh, uh, there's a locust plague in the context of Joel chapter 2, and Joel says to Israel, listen, repentance is the answer here. You guys have cast yourselves before idols, and repentance is what you need. And when you begin to repent, it will be a picture of what's going to happen in the last days. 
that was a term that every good Jew knew. The last days. They were longing for the last days. And Joel said, look, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. You just heard people prophesying in languages that they do not know. There will be blood and fire. There will be prophetic visions. There will be natural phenomenon. Listen, there's wind and fire here. It's natural. There's a phenomenon going on. This is the beginning of the last days, Joel is saying. And then Peter takes them from Joel chapter 2, and he takes them to Jesus. And he says, listen, through the resurrection, through the resurrection of Jesus, the defeat of your enemies has come. And if you're not satisfied with Joel's opinion, well, let me take you to your hero, King David. And so he takes them to the Psalms in Psalm 16. And he says to them in Psalm 16, he says, listen. David knew that there would be a son that would come in his line that would redeem his people. So that even though David may die, there will be one someday who will rescue David so that his soul will never see Sheol or Hades or the abode of the dead. Hades is just the Hebrew term for the abode of the dead. And Peter says, David knew this. In fact, David, in quoting Psalm 16, he says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Who is David talking about? David is not talking about himself because you know what? His grave is five miles away. You can go see it. And every one of you know where it is. You know where it is. And so Peter says, if Joel doesn't convince you, well, how about your hero? And, and then he pushes them even further. And he says, do you remember what, what David said in Psalm 110? David said in Psalm 110 that my Lord said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies like a footstool. Well, David, friends, was not talking about himself. David himself, king, had a Lord. Who was that? And then Peter, like every good preacher is able to do, not bad for his first sermon, by the way. He takes these two areas of the Bible, the prophets and the Psalms, and he drops an absolute bombshell on the Jewish people. And Jesus says, this one who was resurrected, who you've all seen and you know about, you've talked to the people who saw Jesus resurrected, this one was the one that Joel was talking about, was the one that David was talking about, and what you see in the prophets is just the fulfillment of what he always said would come. This is the beginning of the last days. And then the bombshell comes. And you know what you did with the one who came to be your rescuer? You killed him. And when Peter says twice that you killed Jesus to this traditional religious, very, very moral group of people that were all in Jerusalem for the, for the festival, right? It was, the, remember we talked about last week, Pentecost, 
was the festival of the harvest where they brought their grain to celebrate together the coming of the harvest. Everybody was in town. They were fiercely religious. There were probably some non-believers there who were entrepreneurs trying to make money off of the festival, but the vast majority of people in Jerusalem were fiercely committed to the Old Testament and to obeying God's holy law. And Peter has the audacity to say, you knew the Bible, but you missed the whole point. You killed your Savior. But God in his mercy and love raised him from the dead despite what you did. And he's given you hope. And they all cried out, and they were all cut to the heart. And he said, repent and be baptized. And 3,000 believed and were baptized that very day. So the point of this part of Acts is that Peter takes these people into the prophets and into David, into the Psalms, to show them that both their prophets and their hero talked about Christ, and they missed it. Here's the, here's the four applications I want to talk about for us briefly together. I say briefly, but I may get carried away. Number one, what is the teaching of this text? Before I give it to you, let me just give you the teaching. Here it is. Jesus, this is what Acts 2 is about. Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit at Pentecost on all believers announcing that God's rule and reign has come to all the earth because he is our rescuer. Let me say that again because that's a mouthful. Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior, has poured out his Holy Spirit at Pentecost on all believers announcing God's rule and reign has come because he is our rescuer. Now, four points. Point number one. In Owasso, in your life and in mine, hearing this sermon for good people, self-righteousness is bad, really bad, and it is worse than you think. We love to pick on the Pharisees. We, they're like the whipping boys of the New Testament, aren't they? We love to just pick on them. But do you know what the Pharisees, do you know where they came from? Do you know the story of the Pharisees? The Pharisees were people who, three generations before Jesus was born, there was a war in Israel. It was called the Maccabean Revolt. Now, help me out. I'm going to geek out on you for just about two minutes, but it's important. Israel was under the thumb of the Greeks, of Alexander the Great and his descendants. And there was a guy named Judas Maccabees who rose up to be the redeemer of Israel in a very political real sense. And Judas Maccabees led a revolt like William Wallace, and they conquered the greatest power in the world. And for a time, Israel enjoyed independence. It was the golden age of Israel in the Second Temple period. And they thought, this is it. Judas Maccabees is our savior. He delivered us just like the prophet said that he would, except there was a problem with Judas Maccabees. He died. And he had a nephew who then took over several years later whose name was John Hyrcanus. And John Hyrcanus set up priests to rule over all of Israel, except 
there were a group of people who studied the Old Testament really, really well. They were the scribes and the sages of the time. And they became miffed at John Hyrcanus, this ruler of God's people, right? The image of the Savior of God's people because he set up priests that were not in the line of David. And so these people, these sages and these scribes said, this is not right. Like, we don't believe what he's doing is the right way to govern our our country, and so they separated themselves out, and they called themselves Pharisees, because in the Hebrew, the word Pharisee sounds just like the word separatists, and so they separated themselves from the bad, bad world, because they believed that they were the ones who understood the Old Testament law better, and so they wanted to be faithful to God. These Pharisees weren't bad people. They wanted to be the ones who maintained their traditions of their elders, who wanted to live out what God said at Mount Sinai, to live out the, fear, the Ten Commandments. And so they dedicated their lives to being expounders of the Old Testament law. And they loved the Old Testament law. And they began to define their life, what they could and what they could not do. And over the generations before Jesus was born, they wrote commentaries, and they studied, and they applied the Old Testament law to every area of human life. They were the religious good people. Except what happened with the Pharisees is what happens to you and to me. Their Old Testament law became for them their treasure. So much so that they confused what actually was commentary and what was actually in God's Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And so by the time Jesus comes on the scene, he's, he goes after these guys because, listen, you are believing that you're saved because you're keeping all of these laws. But that's not the point. The point was to help point you to the coming Messiah. And they utterly rejected Jesus because he threatened their way of life. The Pharisees were committed to preserving their country. They were immensely popular. And they committed their lives to lead upstanding moral um, lives. Sounds a lot like me. And like you. And like a lot of people in our town. What's the point? point? The point is that Peter takes these people, these Pharisees, the vast majority of whom are sitting there listening into the areas of the Bible that they never really got. He doesn't take them to the law, does he? Where does he take them? To the prophets and to the Psalms. Why? Because they were so focused on their little pet doctrines that they missed the whole point of the Bible. Are you... Listen, self-righteousness is a horrible thing, and it is incredibly deceptive. These Pharisees over time began to be extremely self-righteous about the Old Testament law. And the joy of the Christian life is that as you grow in your relationship with Christ and with each other in God's church and in community, you realize that the depth of your own self-righteousness goes deeper than you thought. Just this week it happened to me. We had this epic-making event in our house where Lauren came to me and said, Honey, um, 
I think I need a treadmill. Like, I'm not getting enough exercise. I want to be able to do it at home with the kids. I'm not being able to, I can't go to the Y or go jog as often as I'd like. I need a treadmill. And immediately, all the red lights went off in my heart. I didn't really know it, but I have a treadmill righteousness. I hate treadmills in houses. I hate them. It's like a 1980s piece of technology that just sits there where your clothes hang on. And when Lauren told me this, I was, you know, I was like, no, we don't want a treadmill. We want to go, go to the Y, go be with people. And she looked at me and she goes, get off your high horse. And in, in the kitchen just this week, I realized I, that, that I have a righteousness for, about not having a treadmill in my house that I had to repent from. And that illustration seems silly, but it happens a thousand times in our hearts. And as you grow with Christ, you realize that the depth of your self-righteousness goes a lot deeper than you think. Sometimes like sea life above an oil leak, we just live our lives and we carry on not really knowing that we're taking in globules of oil that slowly cut our air supply off and take us out. And it comes to us in the church in the form of self-righteousness. And if we're not fierce about understanding our hearts well enough, it will creep in. Listen, self-righteousness is bad. It's really, really bad, and it's worse than you think. Robert Bella wrote a book called The Habits of the Heart that I um, read this week. And when he, one of the things he says is that one of our deepest values— one of our deepest values, especially in suburban life, but in life in general in America, is freedom. But if you talk to people about freedom and ask them what freedom is, they'll tell you what it is. They'll say freedom is freedom from restraint. It's freedom from economic obligation. It's freedom from, you know, a tyrannical government. It's freedom from this or that. But when Robert Bella, the sociologist, asks Americans, what is your freedom for? People fumble all over the place. They're very inarticulate about what their freedom is for. In many ways, the church has to be very careful that we understand not just what we're free from, but what we're free for. Friends, we want to be able to recognize our self-righteousnesses. Yes, but you've got to You've been set free in Christ. You've been set free so that you can live for the beauty of the gospel and growing more and more honest with your hearts to see that in this passage, you are not Peter giving the sermon, you're the Pharisees listening to it. And when you begin to recognize that, ah, oh, there's life in us. And it begins to give birth to fruit for the gospel in repentance. The good news, the, the self-righteousness is bad, really, really bad. The good news, the good news of Jesus, point number two, is good. It's really, really good. And you know what? It's better than you can imagine. Peter's first point goes right to their experience. He's evangelizing. He's telling them, this is how I share the gospel with people. And he says, look, you're concerned about whether these men are drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. And he helps them recognize their own experience. The gospel is for all of your your fears and your failures and your anxieties, and it addresses the things that, you're, that you have on your front burner right now. Lunch, when will I stop talking? 
what's going to happen this afternoon? Did we forget the dip for tonight's football game? Listen, he cares about those things. And when you share the gospel, one of the things Peter teaches us is their number one concern, their front burner issue was Peter's very first point, and he addresses it to get it out of the way, to get them to the deeper topic of who Jesus is. The gospel, the good news of the gospel, why the gospel is very, very good news is that you have not been left to your own devices. You have not been left to your own moral rule-keeping and self-righteousness. But Jesus became for us the righteousness that we could never amount to. And he died, not because we were worthy, but in order, as C.S. Lewis says, to make us worthy. And he loves us with an undying love to help us see that your sin goes deeper than you can imagine. And his redemptive grace goes far deeper still. Point number one is that your self-righteousness is bad. It's very, very bad. In fact, it's worse than you think. Point number two is that the gospel is good news. It's very good news. In fact, it's more beautiful than you can imagine. Point number three, you talk about the gospel with people in Owasso, no matter how religious they are, you're going to get one of two responses. That's what Peter got in chapter 12 and verse 12. He shared the gospel with people, and people had one or two responses. They're the same responses that are in this room. Their amazement and awe and a deep sense of curiosity about wanting to know more or a kind of cynical mockery. You see this all the time whenever you share the gospel with people. People will either be curious and they want to know more or they will just blow you off. And how do you handle that? Listen, sarcasm is a perfectly good way to communicate with people. I mean, it's all throughout Scripture. Ezekiel is sarcastic with the uh, idols or the Baal, uh, uh, the, the worshipers of Baal when they're making the idol, remember? Ha-ha! Maybe he's sleeping! And then Jesus uses sarcasm on the Sermon of the Mount, right? Take out the log of your own eye before you look at the plank in your brother's. Sarcasm is a perfectly good way to, to communicate. But when sarcasm mixes with sin, it becomes deeply cynical which is what we saw back in the garden. Remember what Satan used with Adam. Did God really say to you, Eve, that you shouldn't even touch it? Satan knows how to use sarcasm, and he knows how to make you very cynical of the church. And he knows your past experiences, and he knows how bad you've been burned. And he knows that there are some pastors who are not very good shepherds. And he knows your experience at church. But the problem with cynicism, friends, is that eventually your cynicism will take you to the edge of despair because you become cynical about your very cynicism. And you get into this vicious feedback loop that provides no real meaning or purpose in your life. And so you just, you know, so you have a bad marriage, you just fight through it. You don't really deal with it. You know, it's not going to work out anyway. The church can't help. They're just a bunch of people who gather on Sunday morning anyway. You've got to be able to understand the cynicism in our own hearts because we're going to respond to the gospel in one of two ways. And the way, peop the way we present the gospel, we're going to get one of two reactions, either a deep sense of awe and curiosity or a cutting cynicism. 
when people say to you, you know, I don't really believe in the gospel, rarely do they say to me, you know, here are the five reasons why I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. You know what they say to me? You're a church planter. <laughs> what else do you plant? You believe in the tooth fairy? You believe in Santa Claus? Or, you know, people who go to church might say this, you know, you believe that, don't, you're so anti you believe that we have the ability life that we make for ourselves like it's really arrogant of you to say you can't do that don't be so down on your self-esteem pick yourself up they use sarcasm not argument to fight out of the gospel and one of the struggles with being cynical or being sarcastic is eventually as you look at your cynicism you find that everything begins to melt C.S. Lewis said, you can't go, go on explaining everything away because you'll find that you've explained explanation itself away. You can't go on seeing through things forever because the whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that the window should be clear so that you can see the garden or you can see the scene beyond it. It is no use trying to see through foundational principles like the gospel. If you see through everything then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is in, an invisible one. And to see through everything is the same as not to see. Frederick, 19th century, 19th century philosopher, and he said this. He said that all of your statements about religion are just power plays trying to rule over people. And that statement in and of itself is a power play. So what is the point of language? Or Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud, everything you talk about really is the result of your guilt and shame. Which itself becomes a comment about guilt and shame and things begin to fall away. Or what's really popular today is every religion, every and they're all good before God. Just different up the mountain. They're all the same. And what's important is that you accept everybody, but they forget to realize, and I saw this all the time, especially in campus ministry up in the Northeast, they forget that when they make statements like that, that there is no such thing as an exclusive religion. We're all inclusive. That statement is, is exclusive. So it's perfectly fine to believe whatever you want, but if you don't believe that, oh, then you're really not saved. You're not in the know. The gospel comes into the world to say it protects us from our kind of sneering cynicism. To say that Jesus became for us the word of God made flesh. And that he takes us in the midst of all of our cynicism. And he shows us how much he loves us by dying for us. Not as an idea, but as a real historical person. So self-righteousness is bad. It's very, very bad. And it's worse than you believe it to be. And the gospel of Jesus is good. It's very, very good. In fact, it's better than you can imagine. The third point is, you will react to it in one of two ways, either a sense of awe or a sense of sneering cynicism. Which is it? The fourth point is that the first step to seeing through your cynicism and seeing through all of your explanations of why the gospel is not legit is to be able to say, with a full heart that I killed Jesus. 
He says it twice in this passage. He sets them up beautifully. You can even hear it in the kind of the rhetorical flourish that, that Luke gives it. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, you can hear the cadence. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of God and foreknowledge. He sets it up. You killed him and crucified him by the hands of lawless men. The Romans put him to death, but you gave him to the Romans. Listen, the first step toward growth whether you're a believer today for the first time or you've been a believer for 50 years, is to be able to confess before your Savior who loves you, Jesus, I killed you. There's a story I just read recently about a man who on Craigslist put out an ad about a farm that was 669 acres in Ohio. It was a beautiful, beautiful piece of land. And he wanted to find a man to come and live on this farm. And so he said, look, you, I, I will pay you $300 a month to come live on my land just to keep an eye on it. You can do whatever you want. It's your I'll give you the house. I'll give you everything about it. So he got 100 applicants, and he began to interview these men at the Waffle House in Ohio, some small town I can't remember the name of. And if the man had a family, he was out, didn't get the job. He'd find a middle-aged man who had no family or known relatives, and he would give him the job. And the guy, it would just make his world, the American dream. I get to go to Ohio and live on this beautiful piece of land. And so this man, whose name the article says was Jack, and his young nephew named Brian, they would take, they pick this man up, take him out to the land, and they would walk him into the middle of the woods and shoot him. Then they placed the ad again, and another man would sign up, another middle-aged man. And slowly but surely, these two guys, an uncle and his nephew, took these men out to Ohio, and he took their life. They murdered them, and the article is called Murder by Craigslist. Listen, that's pretty horrible. There's nothing more sinister I can think of in the week that I prepared for the sermon than that story. It's awful. They courted a man. They interviewed him. They knew everything about him. They set him up to have this wonderful job, and they murdered him in cold blood in the middle of a field. And then they buried him. But you know what's worse than that story? Is what the potential human heart when it's left unaided by grace, and you took out Jesus. I see that we have freedom and joy. We have hope and purpose. There are two different reactions that people expect. That Peter says you need to either repent and be baptized or you live in your mockery and cynicism. And Peter invites every one of us to repent and to say, Jesus, I know that I took you out. And I know that my self-righteousness, as good as my motives may have been, that's the death knell. I had good motives. As good as our motives may have been, Peter here calls the church, his people, the religious subculture of Judaism in the day, back to repentance. To repent, been brought into the covenant community of Christ.
baptism meant to be brought into God's covenant community. It was a sign of saying, in your brokenness, we want you to be a part of something greater than yourself. And so this morning, friends, listen, our self-righteousness is really bad. It's really, really bad, and it's worse than we think. But the gospel is good news. It's really, really good. It's better than you can believe. Look past your cynicism and come to the joy of the cross knowing that your Savior loves you. And also be aware that when you share the gospel with people in town, especially the people who grew up in Christian homes, they will meet you with one of two responses. A deep sense of curiosity because somehow the way you talk about the gospel is different. Or a deep sense of cynicism because it's just more of the same. And you have to be prepared for both of those responses. So let's be a community that welcomes people, that understands the whole of Scripture, that looks at the Psalms and the prophets and the law and the Gospels and the letters and Revelation and understands that every bit of it points to Christ because that's our hope. The Lord's calling you into repentance in some area of your life this morning. Don't grow cynical. Enter into it. Even right now as I pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in the very first sermon that we see in Acts, it is for good people. It is for the religious. It is for those who subtly have begun to pride themselves on their doctrine or their knowledge or their five points or their memorization of Scripture. But Lord, somehow, if people in this room are like me, we sometimes um, fall victim to our own moral checklist. So draw us back into the covenant of grace so that we may recognize that we are righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and him alone who died for sinners like us so that we might be free. Lord, help this good news, which is good news for the Christian and the non-Christian, to melt our hearts in praise and in sacrificial giving and in joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name.